0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Track and Field Performance Podcast, a platform dedicated to providing expert insights from coaches and practitioners who work in the sport of track and field. I'm your host, Colin Burke. I'm a long jumper from Sligo, Ireland, who currently works in the field of higher education as a career coach, as well as being a volunteer assistant on the University of Louisiana Monroe's track and field team. I hope that this podcast serves as a useful resource for you and your athletes enabling them to improve track and field performance. Now, without further ado, let's get started with today's episode and bring forth our guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Track and Field Performance Podcast. This is episode four, and today I have with me David Maris, a sprint coaching enthusiast who has a, a wide array of experience in the world of coaching as and as an athlete himself i'm very very happy to have him here today david how are you getting on
1: i'm good thanks Colm. how are you today
0: i'm doing well thanks uh busy saturday here in louisiana it's a pretty dreary one at that but you know things uh aside i've i've been training away rehabbing from this injury of mine and you know, things are going in the right step so i'm pretty optimistic about that but um I just wanted to get a little bit of a insight from yourself on perhaps your background and experiences for the listeners to introduce yourself and tell them where you started and where you are now.
1: Okay, well, I'll try and keep it like reasonably concise. But um, So, as you may guess from the accent, I grew up in the UK. So, I grew up in a place called Milton Keynes. Um, and I was quite fortunate that when I joined Milton Keynes Athletics Club, around the same time, there were a couple of people Um, who also joined the club that the listeners may have heard of. So Craig Pickering was one of them. Um, And then the other one, Greg Rutherford. Uh, So kind of Craig and Greg were both um, sort of excelling at the junior ranks at the time. And sort of through that, I just kind of hung on to their, hung on to their coattails and sort of managed to kind of rub shoulders with uh, some of the experts that they were working with. Um, And then that kind of like led me to, uh attend university at university of wales um and at the time there christian malcolm and darren campbell amongst others were were training so this is kind of around 2003 uh, so darren had just won a bronze medal at the 100 meters in the world champs um and kind of during my time there he also picked up an olympic gold in the relay um so kind of got to rub shoulders with those guys um and i spent a year training with uh training alongside darren from 2005 to 2006 um Then the following year, Craig had moved to Bath to be trained by Malcolm Arnold, who was Colin Jackson's coach, training with a guy called Jason Gardner, who in 2004 was the World Indoor 60 Meter Champion. Um, So then I got to sort of witness a little bit of what was going on there as well. Um, Then following that, I moved up to Loughborough. Um, So and... In Loughborough at the time, Michael Kamel had a formidable sprints group. So um, perhaps one of the names, or a couple of names that might stand out, was uh, James Salu, who went on to run nine nine one. Uh, Harry Aikins, a UT, um, a, a ten flat guy, uh, huge muscles, um, yeah, and Leon. He's known Bat- for it. He's known for his muscles, certainly, um, and Leon Baptiste. To at the time, around that time, he went on to win the Commonwealth Games 200 meter title. Um, so got to witness what was going on there. Um, Moved back down to Milton Keynes and uh, spent a lot of time with Greg Rutherford, who at this time was now being coached by Dan Path, sort of in the path to 2012. Um, So I got to see, kind of have some fairly good insights into what Greg was doing uh, and what Dan was doing. Um, And it's almost, I guess, from that point, it's kind of here we are. So in 2013, I moved out to Dubai um, for five years so I spent four of those years coaching youth track and field um kind of one a couple of that sorry part of that was for a club part of it was sort of my own sort of private business um before moving out here to the U.S. in 2018 um so I'm currently based in Boston um teaching and sort of keen to get involved in coaching but it's um kind of the COVID restrictions have meant that's been a little bit more challenging. Um, So that there is an opportunity hopefully for me to volunteer at UMass Lowell, but waiting for those COVID restrictions to be relaxed a little bit so that I'm allowed on campus to kind of try and help out there, but definitely try and keep, um, you know, kind of keep in touch with kind of best practice and, you know, I like to kind of engage in social media um, with, you know, discussions on, uh, you know, various kind of, aspects of programming, technique, all that kind of stuff. I think like programming is probably the aspect that I find most interesting. So, yeah, sort of in a very big nutshell, that's sort of kind of how I found myself on this podcast.
0: Absolutely, it is. And I have plenty of things to kind of say about that. But first of all, I want to ask you, what's British Sprinter? Have you not been around? That's quite an array of, I guess, various eras (laughs) coming together, whereby, you know, you have a lot of different athletes who had great success in the early 2000s, and right up until probably 2015, when you mentioned like James DeSalu, who, and what's funny is many of those athletes. When I think about them, they had very different characteristics about you know their strengths and weaknesses and so on, which is going to be a great platform for you know what we're talking about today, which is short sprinters and their you know philosophies or training considerations when prescribing said methods and so on and. And that's a really, really interesting background to have for that reason. You know, I think about athletes like Greg Rutherford, and we know that they have very well-documented, I would say, uh, qualities about them and and the journeys they embarked upon to kind of find what, what would enable them to be consistent. And he's just one of those unique athletes that had to kind of adopt and, and learn by failure or perhaps doing things the wrong way for him. And so that's kind of, you know, more contextual than that. But I think also when you, when you talk about how you found your way onto this podcast, I think one of the main reasons I thought about asking you was just because I do see how much you engage in social media and you ask a lot of thought provoking questions. So although you don't boast a massive NCAA D one coaching resume, I don't think that's really important, although that's been my common theme thus far in this podcast. It's, it's very important, I think, to emphasize how good discussion can lead to really a lot of food for thought for practitioners and coaches out there. And I think I've learned a lot from just even engaging or observing some of the discussions you found yourself in. And uh, I just, I just appreciate your approach to it more than anything else, because I listened to Derek Evely's and Stu McMillan's podcast as of recently. And one thing they said that's missing in the world, and I couldn't agree with this more, is that we're too quick to shut down certain people's arguments if they don't align with our agenda or essentially our viewpoints on the matter and we're not willing to engage in meaningful conversations where the outcome mightn't be in our favor. We've forgotten how to listen. If we ever really did it all, I wouldn't know. I'm only 26 years of age, but I think it's important to understand that people's approaches to a lot of the divisiveness, there is a, a common theme in it all. And I think whether it's right or wrong is another issue altogether, but there is definitely an element of listening and willingness to consider that someone is talking about something you don't know. It's a, you know, a famous philosophy also off as clinical psychologist, Jordan Peterson is assume the person that you're talking knows something you don't. And I think from what I've observed from watching you engage with other people is that you are engaging. You're not telling people how to do things. And that might be because you feel rather humble in, in that you haven't, you know, coached at a very, very high level um, compared to some others. But I think that mentality in which you bring uh, allows you to take more from various different people and and begin to consider what best practices might be. As you said, that's something that you're you're incredibly interested in. And that's exactly what we're going to discuss. And so pertaining that to more of the short sprinter element, I guess, what are some of the fundamental or various types of stimuli that you see as, you know, uh, essential for, for short sprinters? Well, I think that
1: like, if you're, uh, uh, firstly, I want to say thank you for the kind words as well. Um, I think that when you're looking at a short sprinter, you kind of just need to break down the components of the race and then you're, you're figuring out, um, kind of the stimuli based upon that. Or oh, that's, that's my approach anyway, the way that I view it. So, I mean, very, uh, very broadly speaking you've got acceleration you've got maximum velocity and then I, th- I think the one where the um, the terms become a little bit more misleading uh, speed endurance and I think that um, you, you know you only have to read f- sort of a few different coaches that have written articles about their speed endurance training um, and you know you could have you know somebody that's referring to I don't know like three times 80 meters off 12 minutes recovery that's their speed endurance session and then on the flip side you could have somebody that's talking that's saying okay we're going to do six 150s off four minutes and that's their speed endurance session so i think like the, the the labels there the terminology for speed endurance is something that becomes a little bit more confusing and sort of like almost to try and bypass that um i often sort of refer to it as just specific endurance because then i feel like you're not just trying to kind of um develop general qualities there's kind of like a specific there's a specific intent with that endurance training that that you're at least hoping that it's going to transfer it's going to transfer to the competitive event um so i mean you have like speed endurance such so, you know sometimes that's even broken down speed endurance one speed endurance two special endurance one special yeah. endurance two kind of got all these terminologies and i think that sometimes it gets uh, sort of quite confusing so i tend to use kind of like specific endurance as like Mm -hmm. an all-encompassing term there to kind of cover those yeah um and then sorry moving on the last one that um i think that you've kind of got your tempo workouts as well which um that would be kind of the more general as i referenced earlier the more sort of like general preparation type um type commodity um and within that you've got extensive tempo and intensive tempo and there's a it's almost like quite a contentious sort of topic right now, certainly on social media. Um, There was an article that came out today on Simply Fast that Ryan Banter had written about tempo training, which Mm -hmm. I thought was really well written. I I enjoyed it. Yeah, Um, I did too. Yeah, I thought it was good. And I think that there's, I would probably say for many, for most, there is probably some room, some benefit in a program for some tempo work. Yeah. Um, so, you used the word contextual earlier, and I think that really coaching training is very, a programming it is very, very contextual. You've got to kind of base it upon facilities, who you're coaching, the environment. There's a, that, that, there's a lot to consider there. So, kind of, it's definitely not a case of one size fits all. And I think that um, you mentioned earlier that we're kind of very quick to kind of shut down people that may not agree with. Our philosophy, our theories, and I think that sometimes that's done very prematurely as well. Um, it it's quite difficult to, you know, even if you're seeing a training session, it's a, it's a snapshot of what's kind of going on in 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 terms yes. of the whole the whole annual training cycle or whatever. Um, so to draw judgment just on one sort of myopic piece of the puzzle, I think it's quite difficult. Um, and I think people and and I think the social media culture doesn't really help with that as well I think that it sort of rewards people for kind of extreme bullshit sort of comments tweets whatever yeah Um,
0: we talked about that that recently actually with regards to you were talking about selling what like what would make would be people more inclined to buy into a certain thing if they take extreme bias or another and I think that's that conversation or that kind of idea at all And, and and we could go into how that's that also exists outside of sport as well and, and how things are prevalent in social media with regards to well, quick snapshots are often the sexier thing to talk about or give people insight on and it really doesn't paint the whole picture and yeah for people to kind of make extreme judgment off a snapshot is something that is potentially dangerous and and not i think it deters Coaches also from posting more. I think there are plenty of good coaches that don't share their content because they fear judgment. And that's, that's a potential learning experience for all of us to, to benefit from that essentially doesn't, uh, you know, come to fruition because of the, the implications for posting such. And, um, I think you bring up a really good point and it's it really is why I believe you were the perfect person to kind of talk about this, because we can go into context and emphasize how important it is without, you know, suggesting that it's the one way to do things. But you may you mentioned the main energy systems and or I rather the main primary drivers for short sprinters. And I'd say from your observation, you could probably even go as far to say as those key sprinters that you spent time around like and and those coaches who were successful did they all share the same philosophy no absolutely
1: it. not no not at all um you know I wrote not too long ago there was another I feel like I'm plugging simply faster here a lot but I wrote an article um plug them all you want <laughs> so it was um I can't remember the exact title but it was essentially nine nine lessons I learned from speed experts it was something along those lines um and Yeah. I mean, it was, even within training groups, it was very different, you know, like the athletes that would respond well to one thing whilst another athlete may not respond well to it. So, um, I mean, the the example that perhaps springs to mind is you you compare James DeSalu to Leon Baptiste um, and, you know, both, both very kind of driven, both very sort of professional in their attitudes, hardworking guys. I mean the, the session that springs to mind with Leon. So I, I'd gone up to I'd gone up to Loughborough and I jumped in this session and it was um, two sets of four two hundred meters in I think the target time was 28 seconds. So there was myself, James DeSalu, Harry, Leon, and a guy called Tim Obey, who was also a 20.5 10-2 two runner. Um, so we'd done I think I think I think after six runs, everybody had dropped out except for myself and Leon. And you know my PB twenty three seconds, so I'm I'm hanging on for dear life running these twenty eights, and uh, we've got to the eighth rep. I'm eyeballs out trying to run twenty eight seconds, and then I just see Leon like bounce off into the distance, and I think he spl- I think he ran a 24.5 on his last on his last two hundred, and you know he thrived off that volume. He he was that it was those kind of workouts. It was that program that led him to run that twenty point four when he won the Commonwealth Games. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think James um kind of thrived off a or, or did better off a far lower volume but a higher intensity sort of approach yeah. um and you kind of saw that you know in 2013 2014 where um he, he was running a bit quicker um but a lot of that volume was sort of stripped out yeah um so even within the same training group you kind of got you, you've got different people that are responding to different things and then um and i think kind of related to that same point speaking about greg and i mean greg would tell you that before he joined dan you know he would be doing you know 300 meter hill runs like a, a lot of volume i mean i remember him he'd, he'd done a 60 meters he'd done a competition he'd run 260 meters at eton this is back indoors in 2009 I think i've
0: seen this so he ran like six six or something
1: yeah, so he ran the first race. I, I I might have the time slightly wrong, but I think he might have run like a six seven zero or or low six mm-hmm. seven in the first race, and then a very high, maybe even six six nine or six six eight in the second race. I think that's and on
0: YouTube. Actually, it Pretty might sure have well be Eaton because yeah. uh, I've yeah, been there eaten. myself. Yeah, it was Eaton. Yeah, like back two thousand and eight or something.
1: Yeah, it was two thousand and nine,
0: and I okay. think he beat, yeah, yeah, he, I think that's was, on YouTube.
1: Yeah, so he's racing Conrad Williams and Chris Tomlinson. Oh, wow, and um. I was with him and then at the time after the race his coach at the time wanted him to go and train later and kind of Greg he's sort of known as being a little bit fragile kind of known Mm -hmm. as breaking down and you know he'd been he'd been training hard kind of like on a more high volume type approach Um, and then when he got involved with Dan, it was sort of more right. We're just gonna have, we're gonna have three focus sessions each week, and so we're gonna basically train three days a week. I'll, I'll give you a few a little bit to do, kind of on your days off at home. Which, I mean, Greg would readily admit, like he wasn't, you know, he wasn't anal about doing it. Um, and you know, at the time, I could look back at Greg and think, oh, if only you applied yourself, think how good you could be. And then I reflect back upon that now, and it's he had such good intuition he was so in tune with his body that i think that he just knew what would work for him and also an extreme amount of confidence that allowed him to just trust his intuition as well um so he was just comfortable backing off kind of doing less volume but then the work that he did do was all of supreme quality and i mean you know when he was in the, you know he he got very strong in the gym you know power clean like 150 yeah. i can't even remember what he was doing with the low box step up but he
0: had and I was like 260 kilos it was yeah. heavy It's a lot of weight on your shoulders yeah yeah
1: and then um you know the standing long jump 355 met, you know 350 yeah. meters yeah. plus um and you know his his sprint speed spoke for him so you know there was a there was a 120 rep that he did one year i can't remember 2011 maybe something like that 2010 so he's he you know he does a 120 out warm weather training in the US. And in the rep there's Greg, Dwayne Chambers, Marlon. That's Devinish, on YouTube too, to. actually.
0: Yeah. I showed well, my coach takes that. And he yeah. was like, he was like, no way. And I was like, no, that's actually on YouTube. And he's like, yeah. he scorches Christian Malcolm, Marlon Devinish, and Dwayne Chambers in a 120. Yeah. Like yeah. that tells you everything you need to know. It
1: does. He's yeah. I mean he's so I always it's sort of my uh, my go-to story is that you know I've run with some fast people. Now I've run with mm-hmm. a, with a, two maybe more guys that have run under 10 seconds, but no one makes me feel quite as ordinary as when I run next to Greg Rutherford. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point being is that the quality of his training remained, and it was just kind of dosing, giving him small doses of high-quality work. And yeah, you got an Olympic champion, and then you know three years later, world champion. European champion company, you know, right. it's got all these, uh, he's won everything there is possibly that he can win yeah. in the sport. So.
0: going over that rollover kind of philosophy, Dan Paffs is, you know, get those three main sessions in a week and kind yeah. of monitor the athlete's response and 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 when they're done is not exactly the most important thing, but rather, are we ready to, you know, give some output on the track, or you know, on in the pit, <laughs> and that's yeah, kind absolutely. of what's making the judgment for selection on that day and it's something that i've learned a little bit about just from being with my own coach now is that during competition phases he'll readily go into you know what's called a a three-day rollover and that's you know your your conditioning and everything else which is you know maintained throughout the year is going to be done in the days in between the main workouts and what's interesting as well is just we're probably going on the more specific end of what you know perhaps should have been addressed as more general concepts we can go back there it's really no no issue yeah. but what's interesting is that he will talk about you know keeping elements consistent and that's you know out of those three sessions one of those is going to be acceleration development because you want that there mm-hmm. all the time because it's one of the primary factors in you know whether it's long jumping or sprinting you're not gonna just do a 10 day or bi-weekly session of acceleration. You want that to those rhythms and timing and and patterns to maintain consistency there. And it's at very low cost as well in comparison to perhaps other elements of speed training. So, you know, keeping that ingrained in, in the program is is pretty fundamental to you know, ensuring that there's some stability at all times, both physiologically and, and mentally as well, just because I think it's fair to say, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but most coaches would view, um, if the acceleration is off dramatically, that the patterns for the rest of the race, even if you're a hundred meter runner, can't really be brought back into play midway through the race. If, you know, you've had some missteps early because you haven't, dial that in sufficiently or maintain that quality throughout the season and so you know in some shape or form i would imagine in those three-day rollover periods which um dan talks about and and i think greg spoke pretty openly about those as well that you know certain qualities much must be remained intact and i'm sure he had some approach running or short approach jumping as you know number two of three of those sessions and then depending on a given week it might have been approach runs or max velocity work depending if it's a comp week or or not because you know we know a, a competition week is a well it's a training session in itself isn't it and so you know what you select to be priority might be might be different depending on the time of year but I find that is a very interesting concept and I suppose when you look at basic sprint training philosophies there are two in which jump out at least to me that I can say are two different approaches in variety and they they kind of exist in different parts of the world i would say for for a variety of reasons the high to low method and then the low to high method and there's probably plenty of people who kind of operate somewhere in between and i think there's probably good debate for why that's done in certain places and not and why coaches have a biases towards one or the other um Talk to me a little bit about what those generally entail and uh, probably the pros and cons of both.
1: Yeah, so um, so the, the high-low method is sort of like, a, that's a Charlie Francis, or he sort of brought that to the forefront. And then kind of within that, you've got short to long and long to short, which he sort of popularized.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think that um, what... I don't know that they necessarily fully exist in isolation. I think that's quite an important point here. That yes. it's an emphasis rather yeah. than it being all ex or all. Of exclusive. course. I'm not even sure if that's the term. Where, where you know you're not exclusively doing acceleration. You're not exclusively doing speed endurance. But there's just a bias. And I mean the, the Charlie Francis literature. You know he's got. There's some great graphics, which um, I think Derek Hanson was fairly involved in preparing as well and i can send them over to you i don't know if you're able to put them in the show notes as well where so it kind of gives like a a visual aid um, Mm -hmm. with regards to what we're talking about but i mean so essentially what you've got in in the in the short to long in the early season your emphasis is on is, is is on short work so your emphasis becomes on the acceleration getting those qualities in place and then what you're going to try and do as the year goes on you're going to try and progress from acceleration through max velocity, into speed, special, specific endurance, whatever you want to yeah, call it.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, but that's not to say that in the early part of the season, there is no endurance work.
0: Or no tempo. Or,
1: or, well, yeah, so, I mean, te- tempo is ve- tempo is p- fairly consistent, or my understanding, at least, is it's fairly consistent throughout the whole year. I mean, Charlie Francis, he tended to use that for a slightly different reason, which I'll come on to in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then with the long to short, the emphasis at the beginning is let's get those endurance qualities in place and then we'll, we'll sort of like work backwards. We'll kind of, we'll raise the acceleration later on in the year, but acceleration, a big Charlie Francis concept is the undulating periodization. So you've got mm-hmm. vertical integration, which essentially means that at all points in the year, everything is being addressed. Yeah, And what's changing from the short to long to the long to short is the emphasis of those qualities. So what proportion of time is now spent on acceleration? What proportion of time is now spent on max velocity? What proportion of time is now spent on um, speed endurance, special Mm -hmm. endurance, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And so kind of depended upon your goals. So for example, if you were typically, I don't think there's any absolutes. And I think that's a really, really kind of, key point for probably not just track related, but anything that the world, I think it just doesn't exist in absolutes. Mm. Everything's kind of like an area of gray. Um, and I think here, so with, so typically if you've got a sprinter that wants to focus on 60 meters indoors, then probably a short to long is going to be an appropriate or a more appropriate way to kind of prepare for that. Mm -hmm. So you've kind of got October to December to kind of work on those acceleration qualities, which obviously, you know, I mean that's that's a huge component of a, of a 60 meter sprint. Yeah, you know, special endurance. And that's probably really a certain type of much.
0: athlete too, because you, cause you yeah, talked about, absolutely. you know, James Desalu benefiting from higher intensity, low bouts of work. If we want to talk about volume and things, it, yep. it might be fair to say that he himself would have benefited benefited more from a short to to long approach from the beginning of the year.
1: He may well have done. And I think that, I mean, Charlie, Francis, he's spoken about this, um, you know, like uh, if you get kind of your, although James doesn't necessarily fit this model so much, but kind of your shorter, stockier, I mean, James was definitely what we consider wired, but your shorter, stockier, wired athletes that are very strong in the gym, very explosive, he tended to find that they thrive better on a short to long approach. Whereas your taller, rangier, smoother, slimmer type athletes, they may well have operated yeah,
0: you're slightly more, optim- and-
1: yeah, slightly better on a on a on a long to short. I mean, as I said, it's it's not always an absolute. So you're going to mm-hmm. get people that don't necessarily fit that mould. But right. I think it kind of, you know, if 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 you meet an athlete that you've never worked with, you're starting to work with them. You've never worked with them. They're not able to kind of give you much input into the type of training that they feel works well for them. Then you know that may give you a starting point. Mm-hmm. And then obviously as you go along, then then you adjust. Um, and then returning back to tempo so charlie francis um he was a believer in extensive tempo um, which is, which essentially is operating at i forget the exact threshold but it's like 70 75% and below of maximum speed so if you were a, 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 if you were a 20 second a 20 flat 200 meter runner you take 20 flat divide it by 0.75 that's going I can't I don't know what that works out at 26 27 seconds something mm-hmm. like that um and you're gonna maybe even a bit slower um you're gonna run no faster than that for your tempo for your tempo 200s and he kind of had that on the alternate days so you'd have so you'd have his high day where you're doing except you do you're doing your main track workout so it's going to be acceleration max v speed endurance whatever so you're going to do that you're going to pair that with a weights workout there might be some explosive throws in there that's day one that's your high day Day two, mm-hmm. you're going to come and you're going to do your tempo work. So everything is slowed right down. So you're going to be doing those tempos, beneath 70 75% or whatever. You're going to pair that probably with some general strength, so like some circuit training, nothing that's too strenuous in terms of on, on, on the central nervous system. Mm-hmm. And his belief was that A, this promoted recovery, but B, also what it did is it increased um, uh, capillary density. So it allowed more blood to flow through the, the different the different musculature throughout the body, mm-hmm. which allowed fresh blood, fresh nutrients to the area, and you're able to remove waste
0: products. From the aerobic uh, capacity emphasis, correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So and that sped up the recovery process. Um and also with greater blood flow in the area, it allowed those th- those parts of the body to remain warm so that whilst you're recovering on your high days between reps where because he might have recoveries up to 20 minutes even longer Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then it allows you it allows you to to stay warm during that period more easily okay um so kind of reduce the injury risk um so so you'd end up doing a high day a low day high day low day and so on and 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 that was almost like a non-negotiable in 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 charlie's literature from what i gather Mm -hmm. um And kind of running within that system, you either had a short to long or a long to short, which was just the focus of the the high days. So the low days were relatively consistent on a long to short, short to long, Mm -hmm. whereas the high days were either you're going short to long from the fall through the winter into the summer or vice versa. You're going long in the fall, getting slightly shorter through the winter and then short in the summer.
0: Makes a lot of sense. And I guess something that I've noticed that isn't talked about so much, but I've seen it on certain programs is then like a moderate day, you know, I'm for, for, for us jumpers, let's just say, or let's even go as far to touch on one of the other forms of tempo that Charlie doesn't really emphasize too much, but I feel it's more prevalent in the UK and Ireland is intensive tempo. And that kind of, depending on the volume, of course, can be a high day, maybe, so
1: yeah I mean Charlie Charlie wasn't a fan of it from I I, I want to make it clear that I t- this is all kind of second hand info you know like I've sourced this sort of online yeah, of speaking course. to other people that have chatted to Charlie it's not a conversation that I've had with him um, but yeah he wasn't a fan of intensive tempo and I believe that he felt that essentially it was too low for it to be on a high day so you're not the stimulus isn't great enough to offer you any kind of speed development benefit Right. But then you put it on a low day and it's too taxing to recover from. So therefore you're kind of like, you're prolonging the recovery period. So you're not able to revisit a high day as early as you would otherwise be able to. Gotcha. So it's sort of, um, but yeah, I mean, definitely sort of quote unquote old school British and like you're saying, kind of our like Irish uh, coaching philosophies, you know, intensive tempo is very sort of prevalent. Um, mm-hmm. And I think like a part of that is, perhaps sort of due to the climate. Um, yeah, most definitely. I think that, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, certainly in the UK, there weren't many indoor facilities. So, you know, you kind of go in, you know, this time of year, you're going out in January outside, it's freezing maybe a couple of degrees above. Um, and then, you know, coach. if your coach says, right, okay, today we're going to do, I don't know, like, Four one fifties off twelve minutes recovery. That's potentially detrimental to your health. Yeah, do you know what I mean? You're you're certainly you're taking risks that maybe aren't as calculated as they might be. So that potentially there, what you've got is you you have intensive tempo, which I mean personally I feel like it offers something. So I think so too. So it gives you it gives you the opportunity to rehearse mechanics at a reasonable intensity. Sure. So, you know, you're practicing ground contacts um, at a higher volume than you would mm-hmm. be with your, with your traditional speed work. Yeah. Um, at the same time, it, it, you're learning to operate under fatigue. Um, I'm sure that, you, you know, you do get people that say that um, sort of the endurance is specific to the speed at which you operate. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's not true, but I think it's short-sighted to, think that there is nothing in that realm that you can take from operating at that kind of like 85, 90% type sure. velocity um, and trying to maintain form. Mm-hmm. Under, and also I think there's a huge psychological benefit. I think that if I've, you know, if, if I know that I can run five, two hundreds off four minutes at a reasonable pace, then once the, the uh, you know, as, as an, in, that might be an intensive tempo workout, and then i think that once kind of the volume sort of filters out and then we're sort of doubling trebling the recovery and i've only got to run two or three 200s then i think psychologically that's going to that that's going to feel easier it's going to be like do you know what i've been here before yeah. it, it, it's not too, it's not too bad mm-hmm. whereas i think just kind of the, the gap for me between just extensive tempo you know 70% going up to sort of 95% plus I just think that's a big gap to bridge. So if yeah. you know if you've not done if you've not done those kind of longer runs, in those mid-intensity ranges, for me personally, I just feel like it's that uh, there's sort of it's psychologically more taxing.
0: Sure, and I think that depends on the event too. Like if you're a two hundred meter runner, I can completely see your standpoint whereby you'll want to hit key sessions at high intensities, and so that intensive tempo offers a potential way to bridge that gap and and blend in. The, I guess the more key sessions that, from a psychological standpoint, are going to be key performance indicators in you know where this whole uh, progression is going with internally, and that you know you'll be able to meet the targets of running, let's say you know low seven uh, repeated number of low sixteen or high fifteen second one fifties as you you know get closer to the competition season and you want to hit those key special endurance, long speed endurance, or however you want to label it, workouts. And for me, I've actually experienced in my earlier years being a long jumper and being one of those longer skinny guys who was pretty underdeveloped in a lot of ways. I I embraced, at least at that time, the meaning of working hard. And so at that point, I would honestly psychologically get more of a benefit from having done an intensive tempo workout where I saw some progression versus stepping into the blocks and doing, you know, X amount of reps over 30 meters pure because of pure ignorance, but nevertheless, it, it probably had more of a benefit. And ultimately I did move to the kind of short to long philosophy as I got in touch with my coach, Ian Graham, and he, he taught me the utility of acceleration development. And I guess, I don't know if I can attribute it to my age and just like growth in general because my progression started to accelerate at that point Um, or was it bound to happen regardless of what training methods I was doing. You know, it's really hard to say in hindsight, but I would be inclined to say that the more I've emphasized acceleration development from the the beginning of the year, uh, I think that quality can be introduced in a very, holistic way and and not too aggressive too early because it was funny back in the day like i would have i'd be in dcu and there'd be a various different training groups kind of watching each other and say judging each other about what like you're doing and stuff Mm -hmm. and uh, i was doing like 10 meter accelerations in flats in september at various start positions like falling and um kind of reaction starts with my teammates and stuff and just really kind of mixing and giving a lot of variety to how we'd start and then like someone would come over to me and go like you're doing speed from week one you're going to peak next week it's like well I'm in my flats and I'm running over 10 (coughs) minutes there's a lot of ways in which this will unfold to the primary qualities that we're then going to focus on throughout the year and we would do our tempo you know as restoration effect as you mentioned it can be a very very useful tool for that and I've seen a lot of ways in which people can kind of allow work capacity to be increased in a very clever way with non-impact as well. I know that a coach in Ireland, Shane McCormick, he's also posted on simply faster with regards to achieving great levels of lactate through the watt bike and stuff like that. And those are very, very uh, helpful ways to kind of keep the joints fresh and get the stimulus you want and and fit it into the program. But that's perhaps, perhaps, um, coming off the fact that he's working with Phil Healy, who has benefited at least from my knowledge, benefited more from going on the more volume end and her 400 being improved has enabled her 100 to come down. And I think uh, it does come back as well. We we talk about like Greg Rutherford and, and James DeSalle like these are guys, big boys with huge engines that can express tremendous amounts of force. And yeah. those intense sessions tend to Allow for that expression and and no more, or at least no more volume than is needed. I,
1: yeah, I think you definitely got to be with guys like that. You got to be sort of strategic in terms of how much you're gonna kind of dose them. Um, and I think that one of the characteristics that they both kind of share is that, that they do unfortunately have sort of quite large injury histories. Um, and you know that that could I believe that's that could well play a role in it that you know you're just having somebody that's kind of so wired and um you know like how safely can you keep kind of going back and and having them kind of express those intensities but I just wanted to kind of go back on one of the things that you kind of spoke about in terms of that you felt like that you got more out or or not more sorry but you felt like you got a lot out of those um kind of like tempo sessions and I think that Mm -hmm. you used the word ignorance at one point and I think that in the case of an athlete, at some point, I, I think that ignorance is bliss. I think that buy-in is huge. The placebo is huge. So, for example, if you t- if you if you firstly, if you feel like you're getting something out of these tempo sessions, then I think the fact that you're doing some training that you think is going to benefit you, I think that's massive. I think that there's 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 huge positives to be gained from that. Yeah. And I think the fact that and it almost ties in with the ignorance that if you just if you just do what your coach says, you don't ask questions, <clears throat> you just take it at face value, you buy in, you fully believe it, then, again, that sort of enhances that kind of placebo effect. Yeah. You know, as soon as you – and and it's sort of – it's really difficult and it's sort of almost ironic because you're almost like on a knife edge with sort of kind of like knowledge. Um, and I think that's perhaps one of the challenges that maybe younger athletes today – perhaps face because there's so much information available online some of it conflicting and you've got your coach doing one thing and then you turn up to the coach say well but hang on coach I read this what do you think about this and then any sort of like elements of doubt about the training that you're doing yeah I think is I think it can risk kind of becoming like a slippery slope so that's sort of like the flip side about what kind of um
0: being inquisitive and
1: yeah I mean it's just inquisition and it being an inquisitive nature is I can definitely see that it's something that should be just generally encouraged but at the same time you've got to have confidence in what you're doing and sometimes that inquisitive nature can sort of undermine that confidence a little bit so yeah, yeah it's oh, a really yeah. interesting sort of like balancing oh, yeah. act I think
0: so I've got a little bit true. off topic
1: there but no, did, it was something all, that I think was very that I think was very important um just believe in what you're doing
0: yeah and, and no, the impact no. that that can have I think I think it does and I, I've I I mean my coach is listening to this now and you'll definitely think that's again, I keep finding ways in which in this podcast that, that that is me, like I identify with that. And I've I think the ways in which I've gained confidence in what sessions have changed uh, ultimately throughout my progression as an athlete or at least experimentation with different methods. Like at the moment I would say there's something that nothing more that gives me confidence at least in the last year is that you know doing an approach run that's executed well but it's also fast and like if i you know use the simply faster or not simply faster what we talking about free lap Yeah. timing system just to, to measure my my last 10 meters coming into the board and then you know gauging my pop-up distance in conjunction with that and then you kind of get a reference point for not only how f- much speed i can generate through the takeoff, but how much can I efficiently translate to an actual replication of the takeoff itself? And so you kind of get an idea of what's going to supply the if enough time for you to generate a sufficient amount of force at takeoff. So it's kind of like a very specific way of, of seeing where you're at. And ultimately, you know, if I can, if I can get the timing gates gets out and I'm allowed to, and I <laughs> consult with my my coach on that like that gives me a lot of confidence and like he kind of sometimes allows me to just be me and 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 like kind of have some input with that stuff and then sometimes he's like no i just want you to focus on execution for today and when he does say that usually gives me some rationale and i'm kind of like yeah like he knows me and he knows why this at this moment in time is like the appropriate selection for uh what the goal is of today right
1: and I think, and I think- that, that kind of like, sorry, i just cut you off there, but I, I just think that that sort of really emphasizes the, you know, like the benefit of an open, transparent communication and, yeah. and a trustful relationship. Yeah. And these are kind of like a yeah. lot of the soft skills in coaching, which you're not going to get through reading like training literature or scientific studies on the energy systems, you know, there's being able to get somebody to buy in and believe in what they're doing. Um, and, You know, being able to, so for example, you know, with your coaches, your coach might say, you might ask him if you can use the three laps. And he's saying, you know, not today, but then he's communicating with you. He's, he's, he's explaining his position. He's justifying why he doesn't think that's Mm -hmm. optimal for today. And then again, he's he's having you buy into it, but also Mm -hmm. it kind of sounds as what I think was really interesting there is that um, you've kind of got two pieces of information that you're using to kind of, to, um assess your shape so you kind of got the free lap reading plus the plus the pop-up distance and I think that that's kind of like a microcosm of of just the multifactorial nature of athlete prep, uh, preparation and I think mm-hmm. that that's kind of one of the things that has happened more recently is that everything has sort of become like a little bit reductionist and I think this kind of goes back to social media as well as that oh it's really simple oh all I need to do is get my fly 10 down and everything else takes care of itself and having a fast fly 10 is great like there's no doubt about that it's like i'm all for doing speed work year round i think that if if the goal is to run fast then why would you not practice why would you take a period of time where mm-hmm. you're not going to practice running fast mm-hmm. but i think it's important to place it in context and appreciate that well hang on i've got to get to that fly 10 phase so how am i going to accelerate?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And i've got to be able to maintain that velocity efficiently mm-hmm. otherwise i'm not optimizing my performance mm-hmm. so i think that the, the a multifactorial a multifaceted approach to training i think is something that is very necessary um and whilst all these bits of bits of information whilst all these little bits in isolation are are very important you you can't just take one and say, yeah, right. We just need to go with that. And then we'll kind of ignore the rest. They don't tell
0: you the whole story. And it's funny you say that as well, because I, it makes me think back to a piece on down path where Nick Newman interviewed him. I think it was on testing protocols and he was the only one who really mentioned this. And I really liked it was, you know, you can look at your key performance indicators and you know, they're, they're there for a reason. Right. But, ultimately the execution of these key performance indicators is very, very important with regards to how you rank them in terms of how valid they are. And you know, I think I can, I can, this resonates with me because of I'm a long jumper or what have you, but you could equally take this for a short sprinter. The 30 meter test is a very popular uh, acceleration measure, right? Yep. But I've noticed even from doing it myself, that you can you can cheat that test and it will not translate to 100 meter performance because if you push really low and you know expend excessive amounts of time on the ground and don't and try to generate as much force as possible you can get a really good 10 20 meter acceleration but how that will translate into a fluid bouncy max velocity phase is going to be another question altogether. And that's why I just add that to your point, because how you could just take that small extract and summarize it as a fundamental part to the end goal or saying that, okay, fly 10, for example, same thing. You can low. I've done that too. You can can really rhythmically gear towards and and distribute your energy for that, that small zone but if we look at the entire 100 meter race, those who are successful are the ones who can string multiple yeah. fly 10s back to back to back. Like, yeah. look at any biomechanics breakdown of these 100 meter, you know, finals or what have you. There's a consistent 0.01 or two between those 40 to 80 meter phases between the elite athletes. And so, if you think that they're just trying to get down to their fastest fly 10 for the most part of their training, then I would say you're mistaken. Although, you know, being able to generate as much velocity as possible at any one point is helpful. It's a useful read to, if you're, if that's something you want to constantly assess for the purpose of your training and uh, just monitor for, you know, program progressions and so on, or influencing, um, adaption like that could be great. That could be your way of doing it. Um, but it, it really does depend depend on the event demands, and uh, you know the hundred meters is an art, and it's it's them well coordinated, you know, individuals who can make those segments seem very smooth and effortless, and don't load up for a period of the race that that usually you know win the race. Just when you think about Carl Lewis and things like that, like just how patient he was through acceleration, just so smooth and. If you can like, it's not just because he was tall and rangy, but like he just was never in a rush, and you'd, he didn't overload any one aspect of the race. It just came to him. He allowed it to come to him, and I think that was just emphasized in his training. It must have been. Um, I, I, mean, don't know, yeah.
1: sorry, got, I don't sorry, know. Sorry, sorry. Too
0: on. much about the Telesian like philosophy, the ins and outs of it, at least. But it just it just seemed like execution wise, that was something that was always there and. I feel like that's also why his approach was so efficient on the runway, like just every stride got faster and faster and faster. It's like one oh one of long jump rhythm, honestly, and it's so funny because it just really translated to a great rhythm on the on the hundred meters as well. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, on what you yeah. Saying.
1: I mean, I was just going to say that I think that like, t- so Tom Teles, my sort of understanding, and you know, some of this is based upon the book which has just come out recently as well, is that. He, he was so much on teaching efficient movement, effective movement, effective mm-hmm. mechanics. You know, he was very big on physics. Um, and I think that obviously Carl Lewis had some supreme natural gifts, but then you kind of combine that with that effective, you know, with that effective coaching, that effective teaching, that instruction from Tom Tellez. Um, and you've kind of got, you've got a, a mechanically gifted athlete with a coach that emphasizes mechanics um, and that you know, it's a it's a recipe for success. And I think that one thing you know, whenever I think of Tom Tellez, now I think that he had three separate Olympic two hundred meter champions, and I think that's really a testament to his coaching. Yeah. So it's not you know, so we talk about like Glenn Mills and Bolt. Yeah, Bolt's got three Olympic two hundred meter titles as well, but it's the same athlete. So but with with Tellez, we're we're able to see that he's able to kind of apply it to it, it's not just the athlete there's more to it than that he's able to apply it to to different athletes and that i, I don't know if that's been done by anyone else but that's yeah. fairly unprecedented in recent times um and it's uh, i think that you know that there's a reason that a lot of coaches you know sort of like try and identify and um you know kind of go back through the coaching tree and a lot of it comes back to to, to coach Tom Tellez and i think that you know that he was definitely sort of like a pioneer um, the pioneer in the sport.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's something that Dan even alluded to. I think Nick had said this on the last episode was that, you know, the real measure of a program success is the consistency of results amongst a wide array of athletes with various different abilities and kind of, as we give different case studies for, you know, how individuals approached it, what we're really promoting here is, is the assessment aspect of it and and trial and error essentially to find out what works because i mean at no at at some point you need to take a risk on intuition i mean at some point you're always doing it to be honest on what you think is going to work and then you you kind of go back and reassess it's kind of like kolb's learning cycle which you know as a teacher you're very familiar with i'm sure is just like you know active experimentation post analysis and experience ultimately is what's going to guide the, the future decision-making and it's kind of a repetitive thing until you yeah you, you essentially find uh the said philosophy or, or what have you for that athlete but it's like everything's initially best guess yeah it is it absolutely is and for you you have these we all want to know these characteristics that are going to allow us to make quick choices or informed decisions when we see an athlete id Ideally, like you know, we use the short stocky sprinter, he's a short to low guy yeah. or a, a short to long guy, or and he's going to be a high to low periodization, um, with how we're going to set up the thing because that's what we know about short to stock, short stocky sprinters. And sure, there's obviously been a number of individuals that have allowed us to make this assumption, but mm. it's not always going to be the case. But it's probably your best bet to start off with for that reason, um, absolutely.
1: I think that it's, um, and that's kind of when I when I look at some of these categorizations, they're very convenient, and I yeah
0: think, absolutely.
1: But, but you do need to make sure that you're not not kind of like boxing yourself in by um, categorizing mm-hmm. an athlete uh, as such. Um, but exactly like you like like you just said, I think that it is um, it's a it's a starting point, and then mm-hmm. as you say, you kind of, you go through that you go through that cycle, you evaluate, you reflect upon your practice, and then you kind of make new decisions, new kind of, as Dan would say, a new hypotheses, And, mm-hmm. you know, we try, and then, then you try and sort of like evolve the program that way. Um, and then, and sort of kind of like doing that between athletes as well, like, you know, you can learn from a previous athlete, but um, you need to be kind of agile in your decision-making to appreciate, well, okay, this, this athlete has some of the characteristics that my last athlete had, but there's no two people that are exactly Mm -hmm. the same. So you need to be kind of able to kind of go in a different direction. If that's kind of what the, if that's what the trends are telling you to do.
0: 100%. And then, you know, we get, I've even seen recently, and it's kind of goes back to the submaximal, like the bias towards being against submaximal work and so on. And this is why it might be potentially useful for some person and, and not for another, like in the, in the fall, I've seen people like really, I don't want to say dismiss the utility in wickets, but I've seen people, you know, post videos of like them kicking over wickets. This is what you do with your wickets (laughs) and so on. And I'm like, I personally have found great, um, experience from using wickets for teaching upright running or, And again, I got pulled up on that before. It's upright running. When are you ever upright? Okay, max velocity mechanics, like mechanics using wickets with the dynamic um, nature of the limb switching and force application being under the center of mass. I mean, I've done them for a couple of years now on a Wednesday for maximum velocity development Mm -hmm. in flats. There's no way I'm hitting any more than 90% speed on them. I have a 20 meter buildup and I'm going through a 20 meter segment of wickets and again smoothly transitioning to from a probably shortened acceleration start to a a fluid bouncy upright running and then you know as we progress through the fall we'll then contrast them with spike fly runs right because we're beginning to build some sort of specific tolerance towards that work now, why that might be more advantageous using the wickets versus another might be someone who has really poor frontside mechanics and doesn't generate a lot of vertical force in the upright portion of the run, whereas someone might do that very naturally. And so, you know, it's the use for wickets is 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 little to no benefit. But to say that don't use wickets because it's, it's yeah. silly. We never did that before and so on. Like, as I said, it's just assessing who's in front of you what the performance markers are if we want to teach efficient upright running. And there's a number of different benefits for that. Not only just increased speed, but reduced injury. I've had way fewer and I was such a um, proponent to pulling my quad years ago. Like I used to strain my quad. I strained it like four times um, before coming to um, ULM and since then i've strained it once and the only time i was straining i strained it was when i essentially my pelvis wasn't moving very well and i spun the wheels with quite low hips to the ground and this was something that i improved dramatically through utilizing wickets because i understood how to synchronize my limbs a little bit better spend a little bit t- longer on the ground for my capabilities and in rehearse mechanics that would allow me to use undulate and oscillate my pelvis to a degree where I could apply force from a higher angle of attack and I wouldn't just be recovering the heel to the butt quite as high as I was previously and then thus putting more stress on the quad so like that's quite a lot of different bites of information to consider for why that would be useful for me So for making a quick snapshot judgment of why wickets is not useful is just, I won't accept that answer because you didn't ask me why I'm doing wickets. You told me that there was no use. Right. And so I just think that's like half of the conversations that are being had or why people sit on one side of the fence and other, it's just like, and it's why I just, I really wanted to talk to you because. It, it was like, I I deciphered the questions that you were asking or how you were going about it versus like the general approach, like where we have like these guys who are pro feed the cats and stuff. And I'm not like, I don't even know enough about feed the cats to even say anything. I'm not, I'm just using them because I know that they're a a group, right? That like people yeah. associate. I'm not yeah. saying that like, I believe in high intensity sprinting, like not even saying that. What I am saying is that like, if we could all just have a discussion and uh, not have to like kind it, of sit on one side of the Because you're not using
1: fence. feed the cats, it doesn't mean it's wrong. And I think that yeah. that's kind of the issue. That and maybe maybe it's an unfair judgment on my part, but certainly kind of that's the. And through conversations, it's not only myself that kind of feels that that's the vibe that's being given off. Is sort of anything that isn't feed the cats is stupid, wrong, yeah. um, and. It's almost a cult. That's what. It, that's sort of like the impression that I get, and it's it's just sort of like a dangerous kind of like mob mentality, echo chamber type thought process. And absolutely, like I don't. I have no problem at all with 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 the workouts that they do. I think that there is. I think I can see a value in a fly ten. I can see a value in what in in what's being done.
0: Hundred percent.
1: But to say that anything. It's the only way. In, yeah, yeah, and and that's and, and do you know what? I reckon five, ten years ago, I think I could have been near enough all in with that philosophy. I think mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's very intuitive. I think it makes sense. I think, like, well hang on, I want to run as fast as I can in 100 meters, or I want to run as fast as I can come the season, well let's run as fast as we can every time we step on the track in training.
0: Right right and, that, and I think
1: that that's, that absolutely does make sense, but I think, and this was sort of like so so lockdown. Um, so our, our school kind of closed in March and then had a lot more free time. And I kind of ended up going down like different rabbit holes and becoming a little bit more present on social media. And one of the rabbit holes I, ke- I, I went down was this kind of submax sprinting idea. And I spoke to a few people, um, you know, some quite sort of like prevalent coaches. Um, and one of the themes that sort of emerged from speaking with PJ Vazel, Jonas mm-hmm. Odu and Stu McMillan was that. The submax, submax sprinting, um, it allows for kind of better, for lack of a better term. I'm sure they did give a better term, but it allows for perhaps more optimal, or it's a, it's it's a more ideal environment for a more optimal environment for motor learning, and also it allows for variability. And I think that
0: maybe um, longevity too.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely that. I think that so, and I mean. Th- one of the uh, so I recently I recently tested positive for COVID, had no symptoms luckily, and then I've tested negative since. But right. I had ten days stuck in a bedroom. I couldn't mm-hmm. see my wife or daughter, so I was stuck in a bedroom. So I went down. Uh, so I was ended up watching YouTube training vlogs. And uh, Julian fort a Jamaican sprinter coached yes, by yes, Stephen yes. Francis. He's got. um he, he started a training blog quite recently. Yeah, and uh, Stephen Francis has said that he doesn't he doesn't have his sprinters run maximally and he doesn't have them run kind of past 60 meters fast because he and, and a lot of this is down to safety and I think that it really can't be stressed enough that, that they say like the best ability is availability if you're injured then kind of doesn't matter how perfect quote-unquote perfect your training program is if you're injured well, well it's not perfect you're, you're not going to perform well 100%. so you need to make sure that you're kind of balancing sort of everything in terms with and I think they're two sides of the same coin, but you're kind of balancing everything from like a performance sort of perspective with a health perspective um, yeah. to obviously get you on the start line, yeah. feeling good in one piece, but yeah. also having you sort of, um, you know, with kind of adequate specific preparation.
0: Yeah, being um, addressed.
1: Yeah. Frequently
0: yeah. enough that you're not getting away or detraining the aspects that are going to bring you yeah. success, but being Careful and deliberate with How often there is a program And I, it's funny, I just want to jump in and say that I remember Like, Stu McMillan was being asked A couple of years ago while he was training Andre de and it was like You know, where is Andre Right now? Like, where where is he sitting As we approach the season? Well, he says, well, we know this We can only train super hard Twice a week, so he's at where he's at And it's going to be another Six to eight weeks before he's in sub 10 shape like that's just so realistic with regards to like the athlete you're working with and what you're prescribing it's so easy to get greedy and just load intensity when you're feeling good or you <laughs> think you might get away with it and i am completely a victim of that and uh, even though like we we both said before we got on this is that one of the best skills that you 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 adopt as a coach is pretty much the um, lack of investment emotionally to your own training so therefore like it's easier to make decisions for the benefit of someone else rather than yourself I'm definitely a kind of a a been a proponent for you know doing a little extra like I'm feeling good I've just done some 120 reps I'm going to squeeze in some bounds here with with a little bit of a run-in and it's like do you really need to like obviously you've done some sort of multi-jumping already this week and previous training cycles have suggested that there's a maximum of two days where you touched on plyometrics but this week i'm going to do three because i know that works really good for me it's good for you and you feel great doing it but longevity we've got to get to june for the national championships and put ourselves in the best spot possible to essentially you know be on the start line in, in the best shape. And it's like, so easy to get caught up. I think it's a lot easier to do that. Obviously being an athlete like me, who, you know, thinks he knows what's best for himself all the time. And as a very open communication with coach Smith, you know, that's who, who I think trusts me. And I obviously trust him because I'm going off his program, but, but then I took it to the extreme. He did not tell me to do that. I just seen it on the paper. And what I what I experienced as a collegiate athlete was that he would have everything on paper, but then pull out or sub in various aspects, depending on the readiness of that athlete at that stage. You know, there could be six things on the sheet and the primary one is the sprinting right that we're going to do on that day. There may be multi jumps, multi throws in there as well. You know, we probably do the throws most days. And the jumps is kind of like, yeah, we'll do one out of the three days that it's on the sheet, maybe one to two of those will, we'll actually do it Uh, at least one, maybe two, if we're feeling good. And, you know, I'm starting to think Well, I'm 26 now, and, you know, I'm kind of, I've kind of took a good load for a long time. So I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go all three days, you know, and I put in a really good stint of work that week and, you know, just thought, you know, I'm kind of strong enough that I can, I can kind of handle it. And in the short term, that was true, but two weeks later it wasn't but that's you know another whole conversation completely mm-hmm. but I just think uh it's worth you know understanding the long game that is at hand and where intensity can be taken to the nth degree and that you d- touched on Stephen Francis wanting to kind of walk the tightrope but understand that um there isn't a there's a balance that can kind of be achieved and
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think as well, kind of going back to your point with kind of with Stu and also with uh, Coach Smith that you were talking about there, that like, don't be married to a plan or a periodization scheme, no. or you know. So like, if it, you know, if you come in and you're thinking that, well, I want to use Charlie Francis's high-low. We've got three high ten- high-intensity days. Andre can only handle two uh, two high-intensity days. Well, th-
0: yeah. that that plan needs to yeah. go. You need to yeah. adjust it. Yeah. So it's all yeah. well
1: and good having the kind of this. This stuff on paper, but if your athlete can't handle it, then I mean it's it's becoming very cliche, but fit the fit the the program to the athlete don't fit the athlete to the program. Mm-hmm. Um so you kind of gotta cater for these sort of different scenarios. We're gonna say limitations, but that's perhaps the wrong word. But I think that and I think this is quite an interesting point that sometimes these sort of sort of limitations, restrictions. Kind of help us to learn, help us to, you know, like help us to evolve. Um, so, I mean, you're going to know more about this than me, but certainly, like in the NC2A, um, you've got like a, a a time limit with which you're allowed to have contact with your coach throughout mm-hmm. uh, throughout each yes, week. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so that means at some point, or it potentially could mean at some point, that a coach now needs to make they need to make a decision about well, we can't do everything. So I need to like prioritize. Yeah. And that was and factored
0: think- <laughs> in his subbing in and taking out actually uh, in yeah. that it was time too.
1: So I think that like that there's, there's things to be learned there. And, and I think it can almost be some, in some cases a blessing in disguise because it, it, it prevents you from doing too much. It means that you kind of got, got to prioritize. And, um, and I think that these, sometimes these restrictions can they, they can work out favorably we think it's yeah. a, you know we think it's Agreed. a problem oh we can't do everything we want to do but actually it helps yeah. us and I, and I did wonder and it didn't really pan out this kind of like thought process but I, I had wondered actually you know during during COVID and lockdown people not being certainly in the UK not being able to access tracks and stuff like that whether we might actually see some better performances and, and perhaps sort of like a shift in in the way that some athletes might train it didn't yeah really pan out but i wonder you know things like for example you know acceleration that there was a lot more hill work being done on grass because we could access hills on grass yeah yeah sure um and i wondered if that would kind of create like a shift towards more kind of i guess plan b type training but i'm not really sure that 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 the results weren't overly you know, typically weren't people weren't performing better in twenty twenty than they were in twenty nineteen. So I'm not sure that that you yeah know, that we saw a trend
0: again. enough to sit and make yeah. that claim.
1: Yeah, but um, I, I do think that certainly sometimes these restrictions they can become a blessing in disguise. They can help us have a little bit more like um, you know a little bit more like a laser like focus in terms of right. Mm-hmm. We, we just need to focus on the need to do. Let's let let let's let's kind of cut out the fluff. Let's cut out yes. the nice to do. Yes. Um, because, I mean, I'm sure as an athlete that likes working hard, there, there's other things that, you know, you'd like to do more. You'd like to do yeah. different sort of training modalities, but you can't. And I think that it kind of keeps you, you know, it keeps yeah. you sort of out of your own way a little bit.
0: I think so. And I it, it's really interesting that you say that because I think it allows you to identify what's priority and sequence appropriately for that given day. And then it's kind of like going back to where Dan talked about the rollover keeping certain elements in there okay we're going to get multi jumps in at least once this week because it's kind of fundamental to our ability to kind of generate force right we want the multi jumps so that we can emphasize the the force end of the spectrum or if we're talking about multi jumps being our plyometric training and we're going to see some progression in that we need certain amount of that stimulus in order so that we can bring that to fully fledged bounding come december right like yeah. we're going to keep certain elements consistent and then it's also kind of makes me think about the point that Boo uh jump specialist primarily yeah. in the nca he talked about and this is why it pertains to restrictions but just like low intensity work or a lot of rehab work uh right. subbed in on training days is something that can be potentially dangerous because they cannot replicate the intensities that you're going to essentially emulate on the track and so at some point when you do too much of that it becomes diminishing from the actual primary goal and what i think is good about um like coach would often have me go home and do eldoa he's like you know you should go and do some some eldoa because i have a pretty long spine and you know tend to as a jumper you kind of get a lot of compression in yeah. in around the spinal area and if you're someone who like you know is squatting and olympic lifting throughout the winter and like steve fudge has put up some great stuff on aldoa methods before and and spinal decompression but that wouldn't right. be in the program because yeah. the time allotment restricted that but what was yeah. good is like here's like here's some tools that you more intrinsically motivated yeah. at, and inquisitive athletes will take on board and work outside of your regular schedule and so yeah. it was kind of a, a good of motivator homework. Yeah, a little bit of homework, a little bit of holistic work that's, um, you know, ultimately not going to do you any harm. But then it's like that NCA restriction does limit your ability to kind of leave the athlete at the track all day. And then what actually I think can happen then is if you have like four to five hour practices, it's potentially kind of too long to spend at the track where you can engage and be intentful well, In, the, um, yeah.
1: And I mean, I think this is one of the things that a real positive of Feed the Cats is the fact that there, there's the workouts are fun, they're short, so they're engaging for high school kids. Mm-hmm, so people, yeah. People yeah. get excited about training. People want to, the kids, they want to go and work out. And I think yeah, that's yeah. for me, pro. probably the biggest positive. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it's the biggest positive. I mean, that and the fact that, um, you know, it's making, it popularized sprinting fast year round, yeah. which I, which I yeah. think is, which I think is very important as well. Um, but definitely like the, you know, like the social aspect of it in terms of make getting kids excited, get getting them wanting to work out. And like you say, like five hours at the track, you know, that's a shift and you're thinking, Oh, like that's, a, I'm going to be there for a long time. percent. If you've got to be there 90 minutes or whatever, then, or, or an hour, then it's far less of a daunting task.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's like, if you're not prepared like nutritionally like if you haven't brought food with you or you know you're not you're thinking about other things then five hours is of of actually useful work is likely not going to be achieved because I mean I've learned just you know I work a full-time job and I go to the track most evenings where it's like my window is five to nine and then after that I'm kind of like no I need to like get to bed in an hour so like I usually have food prepared and yeah and and all that stuff so that I can and these are my hard days I'm not training four days or four hours on a on a kind of more low intensity day but it's like you can be in the gym after that amount of work and your stomach's rumbling and (laughs) therefore you're like almost mm-hmm. zoned out and you're only thinking about food. And so it's like being adequately, adequately prepared and knowing that these are some of the roadblocks Yeah, coaches can run into just like, like you may not see that because you're not like, it's not something that you can identify, but intent can be diminished for a variety of reasons. And, 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 and practice length is one of those. And, uh, you know, I, I always liked that, like say Thursday, I would show up to the track pretty during the fall, like pretty tired, like and and sore because I've done Monday acceleration Tuesday, which is kind of a medium day of of approaches and general strength or even tempo in the winter for us. And then Wednesday I've done wickets and some more weights. So Thursday I'm kind of, you know, I'm a little beaten up, but I loved it because Thursday we would just go and do partnered med ball, a little bit of general strength, no strides, stretching an hour, an hour at the track gone, done go home. And then Friday, you know, end of the week feeling refreshed just like ready to go and put in a good stint of work and i always mm-hmm. liked that like your hard days are hard so be prepared and have everything in order but your easy days are easy and i just yeah. personally for me it like just it allowed the momentum to build within the week and i quite liked it but it's just like how those restrictions do um you know there was a 20-hour window that they had to fit yeah you um in the the, the training week. And so allowing every day to kind of get out of control was not, was not a possibility.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you raise a really interesting point as well that like, I mean, speaking for British athletes in particular, you know, some, some athletes that may not be funded and have to work or, you know, you get athletes like yourself that are working full time and how are you going to adapt the training program for that? So, I mean, it's so like, with uh what are you going to do with the weekend you know it might not be theoretically optimal for your philosophy to say we're going to have two hard days back to back but logistics would suggest if you work in a monday to friday nine to five well hang on let's make use of the weekend then so yeah, it might be yeah, 100 hard days on a saturday and a sunday definitely and then so i think that this kind of like the periodization scheme that you want to use or however you want to call it or the or the, the weekly training setup that you want to use is kind of the, the physiological sort of like adaptations or that that aspect of it is only sort of like a part of the puzzle then you've got to kind of gotta fit it in with logistics and then
0: mm-hmm, yeah you know
1: how have you got a family all these other things they all they all factor in in terms of like well yeah. how sustainable how 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 practical is your is your training plan um and again you know if you do something like relatively physical for work um you know coming coming down to the track i mean i don't know if you're a laborer for example coming down to the track having done eight hours of laboring and then right okay today we're going to do we're going to do four flying 30s max you're probably not going to get you're probably not going to get that much out of that session yeah yeah but I your think career that these definitely all, matters when um you know when planning the training week is there's so much more to consider than just just the training theory and and i think that um, I'm a big
0: believer in. Am ia feed life. the cats man or am I not?
1: <laughs> <And> I <laughs> well, just use that. that
0: as a popular example because we've been talking about it. But I just say that the like, you just have to move so far beyond that like commitment to one person or another, or like any training philosophy. I'm not yeah, saying even you, feed you, the cats. I'm saying like anything, any yeah. training philosophy. I mean, that's just it. Like you can't be Charlie Francis training philosophy every day if if there is certain constraints that apply to the given athlete and like what I've learned also, here's the thing that's not really talked about as well is life stress matters too. Yep. And
1: absolutely, I have
0: gone to work fatigued or come to training after work fatigued plenty of times. And I have made decisions on the fly to just lower intensities in, you know, my power cleans on that day or, you know, um, just, Allow more recovery between sprints because I feel I need it. Um, and the good thing about like, I just, you know, I'm going to keep praising my coach because I obviously have a great affirmation for him. Um, but he will have three to four sets on accelerations yeah. 20, 30, 40. Yeah. If I feel like doing three on a given day, that's not because I don't want to do the work, but I, there might be a variety of reasons to why I will choose three on a given week versus four. If and I'm. I think that's, sorry. And, and just because like, it might be competition week. I'm going to do three like because I want to remain fresh for the weekend, because I understand that I'm going to have a Saturday workout, which I traditionally would not have. And I'm going to, as I said, touch on that, you know, aspect of acceleration every week as we've been doing in some capacity or other, but this week I'm choosing to do it in a lower capacity than, um, anything else. And as I said, you know, you, it's it's so important to then have the open communication with the coach so that you can outline why you might need to go with a plan B today and, you know, do those remedial exercises or routines and just for the benefit of long term health, because it's like, you know don't do con- uh, heroic one-off efforts, be heroic at being consistent. That was something that I think I seen you tweet recently. And I think it was off Steve Magnus because he had talked about that or Brad Stirlberg, one of the um, Passion Paradox peak performance authors who I, I really, really enjoy um, their yeah. tweets because they're very, very simplistic in your outlook of um, optimizing performance and like just leveraging your energy correctly and, and how to navigate life stressors and, and and having a a kind of realistic optimistic yet not naive yeah. outlook on the world and so it's, balance, it's really it? yeah it's good though it's it's, it's yeah, good because absolutely. it just it, it's like a tool for you to make good decisions on the fly and understand that these cliches are not always really useful in, in allowing to make good decisions in context yeah that's I what mean, i would I think say
1: what, when you when you mentioned that glenn smithy gives you it gives you ranges i think that's just such a smart thing it's yeah. a simple thing but so smart and effective for a coach to do uh, you know if i'm definitely the kind of guy that if 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 i turn up and the coach isn't there and they've written right today we're doing four sets of 20 30 40 i'm going to try and do four sets of course but just having that three to four written down then it just gives you that leeway that if you're not feeling great then you can sort of mm-hmm shut it down a little bit earlier. And then as, as the coach gets to know you, it might be like, right, uh, like we can, we can change those range. We get two to four or whatever, mm. or whatever that, you know, as they yeah. get to kind of know your strength. What you feet, need is your personality to profile. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that just kind of coming away from a session where you've only done, I say only, but you've only done three sets. And now that, that workout doesn't feel like a failure. You've still fulfilled yeah. the criteria of what yeah. you were set. Um, and it just changes like the whole mindset. And then as for, yeah, consistency, I just think it's, it's underrated. I've often kind of had this sort of thought process and just kind of like these just internal conversation with myself that like, is it better to train, I don't know, two track sessions a week, every week for six months or to do four track sessions every week for a month month off. four track sessions for a month month off and do it that way for six months. And I think, I think the former is, is, is better. I think the former just it allows you to breed more consistency. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's exactly, exactly what you said, um, striving for consistency rather than heroic one-off, one-off efforts. Uh, yeah, I just think absolutely. that like, you can't, you can't be a hero. You can't be a hero consistently on the track. You can't, smash yourself every time you go on the track at some point you're going to break down. So Mm -hmm. I think just kind of like being sort of smart and striving for that consistency ahead of those, um, real kind of high training loads, I think is important.
0: And I think admittedly from what he has said to me, and he would actually say this about, you know, legends like Dan Paff with Mm -hmm. their evolving philosophy on training is that they've become less strict on what must be done every day over time and that things have allowed to become more fluid and flexible. Uh, yeah. I and mean, one of the things that time. kind of
1: jumps out there is just that like, I remember again, Dan started to coach Greg and, and I mean, Greg's moved houses now, but mm-hmm. he just out the back of where he was living at the time, he had these, uh, he had these woods and <clears throat> more recently, he he now trains on a step by on these steps by himself. Yes.
0: Yes. Famous steps.
1: The famous steps at which uh, I don't know how he runs up those two at a time. It's, uh, it's <laughs> absolutely don't. crazy to me. Like it doesn't. I'm not sure that the the, the footage does it justice.
0: I don't think you, it does because I've never seen it side on. I've only seen it from the back. Oh,
1: I, mean, I I I can't run up them two at a time. I can get out the first couple two at a time. And, you know, I'm si- I'm six one with quite long legs. Yeah. <laughs> like as it yeah, it's crazy. And he
0: sprints up them.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's just he's raw. Like running running up a hill with Greg, I tell you that there's nothing that makes you feel quite as ordinary nothing makes me feel quite as ordinary.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He used to, he used to have the, he, he likes doing hills and I think he put something on Instagram in the last couple of days actually saying that he, it, that hills and steps are his preferred kind of method of exercising, method of training. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, he had this, he, he was, he had this hill that he used to run up this kind of, it was sort of like a semi sandy sort of June long hill mm-hmm. type thing. And, um, and he said, "Yeah, Dan. Dan says I can do this in his program." And I remember thinking, "That's strange. Dan hasn't hasn't even yeah. seen the hill. Like, surely he needs to see the hill to assess as to whether yeah, like yeah. Greg to going up it." And then, I think a big part of it was Dan knew that Greg needed to be happy. He 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 under, he appreciated that that was a big part of how this process was going to work. Well, mm-hmm. if Greg was if Greg was happy, and Greg said he wants to do it. So Dan's going to let him do it, and then maybe yeah. he makes, maybe he makes adjustments at other points in the week, so that you know Greg's Greg's running up this hill or what or whatnot. But it wasn't so much about well, this hill needed to be the optimal gradient, the optimal surface, all this kind of stuff. It needed to be Greg's happy, Greg's enjoying training. That's mm-hmm. a huge part of it, and that's certainly something that I've come. I've, I feel like anyway, I've come to understand better more recently. Whereas at the time, you know, this is sort of two thousand nine, two thousand and ten, something like that. I was thinking it was all about kind of the X's and O's of training, the physiological adaptation to a specific session, rather than the more holistic approach and, you know, the psychological aspects, the, you know, the well-being, all that kind of stuff, it kind of, it, it comes into it. And that manages stress. And like you say, like, I think it was Steve Fudge that made the analogy that like, you have a cup and you can fill it with different stresses, but the body can't differentiate between those stresses. So what, once that one stress cup is full doesn't matter where the stress is coming from you reach a point of too much stress and I Mm -hmm. think that you know bit well-being and stuff it sort of like helps it helps to manage that stress oh Um, yeah so so it's a huge it's a huge part of it just being happy enjoying what you're doing yeah I guess that kind of comes kind of full circle back around to the feed the cat's kind of enjoying training wanting to come yes 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 absolutely you know in a more positive headspace which or contribute or possibly can contribute to you know better performance once uh, once the season comes around
0: yeah and i think it's very interesting that you say about greg's scenario and how that might have evolved to being so flexible with those training methodologies like it, it's important to consider that before meeting dan pa for the most part greg had a large injury history where the problem was not the performance per se but it was just getting him to train consistently with regards to getting the load in is what we need to try to address now so how we're going to nitpick we're we're looking at the stimulus like he, that's that's greg's acceleration development let's say that's what was going to suffice for that and because we weren't getting that in often enough in the past how we're going to get it in now we just need to we need to address that and have it consistent and so You might be more nitpicky when you know someone's going to, the outcome is going to be more predictable in the sense that they are someone who is not quite as talented. They can absorb a a serious amount of training load. So you're going to become more nitpicky with how that's, how those methods are refined, so to speak, so that you can maximize everything. But that wasn't, we weren't, he wasn't obviously concerned with whether Greg was going to be able to benefit from training he knew that the man's engine was substantially better than most people's it's just that keeping him healthy has a lot to do with whether he's going to be able to display that come competition time and longevity speaking longevity was the goal and so from a stress point is obviously something that's going to be considered in all of that uh greg being happy with the chosen methodology plays a role in, in in achieving some sort of balance that can contribute towards getting him long-term benefit from consistent training right if you're as i said if you're someone who is able to absorb the loads you might be looking at those gradients a little bit more trying to tweak things but from where he was coming from it was a completely different uh, avenue from your typical athlete And, and and dan was just trying to achieve the consistency and if we i think if we saw anything with the seasons where he was most successful there were less stories about him getting injuries. Of course, he always picked up niggles here and there, and he seemed to be rather resilient with with coming back physically and mentally from those. But, um, you know, he he wasn't missing seasons anymore. It was more of a, you know, two, three-week thing or four-week thing, and he was just, you know, getting back to normal once, you know, things were in in working order. And so I just think there's a lot to, in your point there that, kind of could be extracted from a you know potential athlete that someone here who's listening is dealing with right now and really, really wants to make sure that everything is addressed and working in a certain order and thinks that they can't sacrifice certain elements because this is how it's supposed to be done, but rather, as I said, those subtle compensations or compromises for the greater good can be the best route to achieving long-term success and I think he's just a great example of that
1: absolutely I mean I think I mean I'd recommend listeners if they're interested to reading some of the articles that Craig Pickering writes on the HMMR website and um, I always found those two a very interesting case study because they're they're within a month of each other in terms of their in terms of their date of birth both grew up in Milton Keynes both trained at Milton Keynes as youngsters um, and both very, very successful junior athletes, but, you know, juniors, but, you know, we both, that, Greg ran 10-3 as a junior, Craig ran 10-2 as a junior. So you've got kind of two very supremely talented young athletes here, but their psychological approach was very different. And Craig was one of those people that was like, if this is on the piece of paper for my training today, this is what I'm doing. If I'm, t- if, if coach says, stretch an hour this evening. I'm not stretching for 59 minutes, I'm stretching for an hour. He he would do everything. And Craig, more recently since his retirement, has kind of come out and he he said that he felt like he was chronically overtrained. And just part of that's a mindset. Um and obviously like Craig for for the listeners that may not know, I mean Craig retired very early due to due to back issues, due to injuries. Um, And some of that perhaps could have been tied down to the fact he almost had too good of a work ethic. So whereas Greg, like I mentioned earlier, I think like his intuition to allow to say, do you know what? I'm just going to chill today. I'm not going to do this session. I'm going to, I'm going to skip this part of it, which at the time I was watching thinking, Oh no, don't, you've been so lazy. Think of how much better you could be. It was just, he was just so well connected, had the confidence to do Mm -hmm. it. And as you've said, that kind of allowed for this longevity. Whereas Craig, who and it's almost it all i always find it a shame when somebody seems to have like too good of a work ethic it just doesn't seem fair mm-hmm. and craig's you know he's putting all this effort in and he's feeling like you know he'd do you know he'd say that um i remember him saying to me that, that it might be four sets of six power cleans at 75 percent but he would say, well, do you know, I, I can do this at 85%. So I'm going to do it at 85%. I need to push myself in order to kind of get this get this improvement. And he'd do it. And it just didn't, obviously, the career sort of didn't pan out quite the way that Greg's did. Um, but the mindset was very, very different. And 10 years ago, I'd have looked and thought, Craig's the example. That's what you need to be doing. But whereas it's not quite so, it's not quite so black and white as that
0: yeah i think i think the good thing at least with the information that's out there now is because we have more sources and case studies that are common knowledge to us who are interested in coaching it's i think we do get more reinforcement more often than not that smart work is better served than than hard work and less is more although it can often be taken as you know black and white and that you know we always do less and so f- i'm i'm just gonna use that in when it suits me and yeah. do and do less because a certain adva- certain individuals will take advantage like yeah. i i think i i do sort of detest the, the the sentence like it's all about balance when i i know in my mind that someone is is really just using that as an excuse right and i can just see that from other pieces of of how they construct their lives and decisions they make, on a consistent basis that that at least allow me to make some sort of judgment that that's where the the motivation to use that sentence comes from. And I mean, many of which who I kind of think back to that um, use of the sentence are no longer in the sport. It's it's not that I want to summarize a very complex phrase. In, in something that should be always used. But I think more often than not, we learn that uh, less is usually more and that we're probably at least when we're kind of trying to optimize performance guilty of pushing the envelope a little bit too much. Um, but it's it's something that again, you know, there's there's utility to be uh, extracted from mistakes. And, and so, you know, it's part and parcel of, of being able to to really make conscious decisions going forward. And I don't think when you run into those failures, there's anything um, more you can you can take from it other than just, you know, learning. And I can say that from my own recent experience that like that's gonna serve me uh, you know, moving forward and and so on. So, you know, it is it is really about looking, it is about creating experiences through trial and error and ultimately being flexible enough moving forward that. You don't continue to make the same mistakes if there are trends showing in a certain athlete's selection of their program and and how elements are conflicting with the long-term goals. And so, you know, we got to you got to you got to make you got to make conscious decisions that you think are right. And then, you know, ultimately those will probably change over time uh, to what you think the right answer is. And that's that's just part, that's part of really everything we do in life. But, um, yeah, I think if there was a takeaway message from, from this episode of the podcast, it would really be to, to step back and, and kind of be more flexible and open to looking at the athlete that's in front of you, you know, and assessing that from the get go and and not being too attached to any one way of doing things. And, and, you know, I think there's, there's multiple ways in which you need to approach that and then make the appropriate amendments as you go on, just be in tune with the process and know that it's, it's very contextual. Obviously elite coaches know that, but you know, there could be a variety of individuals that are just now getting into coaching, listening to this podcast and, and, and this title attracts them programming considerations for that very reason. Um, even still, you know, as your experience, I've been doing long jump 11 years now, and i am still at to relearn what my ideology of smart work is. Right. And, yeah. and what I see that as today. And I don't think we've ever, we ever come to finished definitions of where we've completed. It's all respective and, and subjective to that individual. And as, as confident as I would have been a few weeks ago to say, I know myself inside out. Well, clearly you don't. And, um, you know, I obviously know myself a little bit more now than I did, even though if I compare myself to 10, 11 years ago, I mean, there is no comparison. It's of course, so, you know, have I advanced? Absolutely. Um, But knowing there's no ends to the implications for what certain prescription of certain methods can be doing for the benefit of your performance. And so I think we'll kind of conclude with just asking you, David, with where the people of, or the listeners of this podcast can kind of follow you, because as I said, you are someone who really engages in the tracking field community. And if I, and if I have to say this, you know, I'm not, I'm not just saying this because you're in front of me. I think anyone should follow you because I have benefited from seeing the questions that you probe all sorts of individuals with and what the likely outcomes can be from having someone like yourself and in, in, I think it's what Twitter has made for is that you and, and Instagram alike, you, know, you follow people that align with your interests and uh, encourage you to grow. And so uh, where can we find you on all the good social media platforms?
1: Yeah. So like I'm most, um, I almost have like a little bit of a bipolar thing going on here. I've got sort of like slightly different personalities or slightly different, um, a slightly different nuance on uh, Twitter to, to my Instagram. So Twitter, I'm very much kind of involved in sort of, training discussions and sort of like the new the nuances related to that so um, my twitter handle is at david 958 and then instagram i'm more like a track fan so i post i tend to post kind of more like historical sprint races Um, but my instagram handle is nine five eight on instagram but i did just sort of want to just touch back very quickly to something that you just said like you were talking about you said less is usually more and then use the word probably and I think that that sort of like encompasses my approach that everything is nuanced in use work and text again everything just has this kind of there's always a caveat um, and I think that I tend to look at sort of program considerations now as it's like a problem solving exercise so you don't just take a format and throw it at the athlete you look at what you've got and then like I say it's like a problem solving sort of consideration so it's like okay well what can we do to solve this issue or to maximize this issue or or whatever it may be Mm -hmm. um so I don't think it's about kind of trying to have a quote-unquote system I think you just kind of use the information that you have to kind of and and apply it as best as you can in the context that you're placed in so yeah I think that sort of like sums up in a bit of a wishy-washy way without being perhaps too committal but sort of my my perspective on uh, my perspective on, on on sort of programming um, training for a short sprinter.
0: Absolutely, uh, there's templates are useful for giving us a basis and an understanding for what should be addressed and when. But flexibility should be applied and critical thinking should also be applied to 100%. your 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 template. And if that's your if that's your long to short, your short to long. That's all well and good. I have learned um, a two-week cycle with a one like or one-week recovery has worked excellent for me. The density of the program allows for not too much uh, loading fatigue, and ultimately, you know, it's worked better than a three-plus-one. And so, these are other uh, ways in which you might consider. And I, I again, I, I go back to Dan Path as someone who's, um, you know, been more lenient on those type of things as. Time has went on, and I would think that that's somewhat to do with the variety of athletes that he's worked with, and that achieving consistency was ultimately down to the forefront of what he wanted out of that athlete. But I want to kind of conclude the episode of the podcast with just saying that all the listeners who had reached out to me based on the last episode with Nick Newman and the the words of encouragement for what i'm doing and, and so on i i really know that i'm the i'm the lucky one here because i get to sit down and talk about things with like-minded people and people that are well above the expertise that i have because anything i've learned i've just learned it from being around and i'm just and i'm just you know curious about delivering something of ut- utility to the track and field community and so i i really do appreciate any support that i've gotten thus far and i'm going to continue to get guests like david on who bring a wealth of experience in a variety of different areas and and someone who just enjoys getting a good conversation going and i know that i've enjoyed this last hour and i hope you have too so i just want to thank the listeners at home and of course david for joining me here this afternoon it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you and i do really appreciate it and i know we're going to continue these conversations Uh, in the future so I want to thank you for that. Thank you very much for having
1: me on Colm I really appreciate it.
0: It's been a pleasure David so I will conclude with that and just wish you all uh, to be safe and sound during these uh, novel times and to continue to train hard within the confinements of your facilities and everything else there is a season hopefully that awaits us this summer so uh, best of luck with your preparations and until next time take care.